0: You have to be willing to take risks if you're going to be successful. If you want to achieve all the things you want to achieve and you have to take risks. You have to put yourself out there and just expose yourself and say, okay,
1: here goes nothing. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities, In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintained, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. Welcome to the podcast, where today we'll be discussing the role of law enforcement in natural disaster responses and how the media's portrayal of police has shifted over the past decade. Our guest, Chief Griffin will provide valuable insights into these important topics. Firstly, Chief Griffin will shed light on how police officers quickly respond to natural disasters and the crucial role they play in ensuring public safety during such events. We'll also discuss the challenges that they face and the strategies that they use to effectively manage challenging situations. Moving on, we'll examine how the media has portrayed police in negative light following the George Floyd case. Chief Griffin will also offer his perspective on this issue, sharing his thoughts on how the public's perception of law enforcement has been affected, and what steps can be taken to improve it. Finally, we'll talk about the future of law enforcement and the role of young police officers in shaping it. Chief Griffin will share his insights on the opportunities and challenges facing young officers and how they can play a vital role in upholding public safety and security. Overall, this promises to be an engaging and insightful conversation. So stay tuned and join us as we explore these important issues with my good friend, Chief Tim Griffin. Chief Tim Griffin, thank you for uh, making today happen, my friend. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, we're going to have some fun today. And to start, let's give a little background to our audience about who you are and some of the things that you have accomplished. And actually, that might take up the entire show. So if we could try to truncate, you know, who you are and what you've done, and then we'll, we'll dig in to some of your many accolades. Sure.
0: Yeah. So I'm a law enforcement professional. I've uh, worked in three different police agencies in my career. I started back in 1981. That was some, what, 42 years ago, so I've been at it for a while. I started out in a prosecutor's office in Hudson County. I worked there as a detective and worked my way up to the rank of captain. I commanded numerous units throughout that agency, and as time went on, I moved on. Um, I was eligible, eligible to retire after 25 years, and I moved on to another career, and um, I worked with the West New York Police Department as their police director. I took over there, and I worked there for a number of years, and after that, I wound up in the job I'm at now, which is the uh, chief of police of the Stevens Institute of Technology
1: Campus Police Department in Hoboken. Great. Are you at liberty to share the experience that you had during Katrina? Sure. Yeah. I think that's super interesting, and I, I know that I sat there with my jaw, you know, drawn when you were telling me some of the stories.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about any nasty stories, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it was uh, the New Jersey State Police had a task force at the time, uh, and they had asked for people to go down there. I was a commander of what was called the Rapid Deployment Team in Hudson County at the time. And that was an easy place to go to, to immediately grab people to go down to uh, Louisiana to respond to Hurricane Katrina. So within the first week of that storm happening down there, they were, the calls went out for assistance all over the country. So we responded to that call and we went down with about 250 officers firemen uh ems and uh, search and rescue people in a convoy we literally drove down there in a convoy of buses and trucks and police vehicles fire apparatus and we arrived there within two days and we set up in tents in the middle of a field and you know it was interesting because the field that we had set up with was a field at a high school in uh, kenner louisiana right right outside of new orleans there the field was covered in fish there was fish everywhere dead fish and it was not a pond. It wasn't a lake. It was just the water had risen to that level where all the fish were swimming within this town. And then when the water receded, they were all dead. So we had dead fish all around us, but there was no sign of water. Wow. What would yeah. that smell like? You know, it's funny going into New Orleans. You enter through this bridge that takes you over the water. And immediately there was this really harsh smell that we all immediately like, Whoa, it was putrid. And, you know, it was like, what is that smell? You thought it was momentary, but then you realize that this is what New Orleans is going to be smelling like for the next two, three weeks that were there. So that smell never went away. It was just because of the everything that was going on, you know, the... Paint the picture. Yeah. What is that? Well, you know, I mean, if I had to paint a picture, I would say just think about The Wizard of Oz where you had the movie was in uh, black and white in the beginning, and then it turned to color. Uh, New Orleans, (laughs) arriving at that point, the the water level was probably up to the second floor of many of the buildings that we were going, many of the houses. It was at that second floor level. Everything from the ground up, the grass, the trees, the siding on a house, everything was gray. It was just like black and white. And then above that, where the water didn't hit, it was still color. So it was a very weird thing to see, you know, that the water had risen that level and killed everything that was you know beneath it and uh yeah you were stuck with that and that's
1: really the, where the smell came from so wow so and it was still like that when you got there and give me an, a time frame in terms of how long your deployment team got there from when the the devastation hit
0: well we got there the storm hit i believe it was august 31st i want to say around then um within i think by september 6th we were arrived there and um so we were there Pretty rapidly, we arrived at nighttime. There was no lights, there was no electricity, there was nothing. There was poles down, and you were literally relying on the, the lights from the buses to get you down to where we had to go. Uh, when we get out again, there was no light. We were using flashlights to try to set up tents and, and things to sleep in, you know, for the evening until we can get to daylight and start figuring out what was going on. Wow. But it was hot. It
1: was you know really really hot. <laughs> And uh, it was quite an experience. So what's that like, like, you know, getting there? What do you do first? You know, who is it that, you know, how do you put together, you know, leadership teams? Or did you have a plan? And then as soon as you get there, you're like, kind of like what Mike Tyson says. Everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Right. You know, like. You
0: know, the state police in New Jersey, they do a really good job at this. They they just have plans for these type of things. They respond all over the world, actually, now. They assist when Puerto Rico had their hurricanes down there. And uh, they're constantly, I think they went to the Dominican Republic also. So they have plans for this stuff. I was assigned, I was appointed a strike team leader. which is kind of like in the incident command management system, you know, there's different levels of uh, management. And I was a strike team leader. And that basically meant I was in charge of two teams, Hudson County and Essex County, law enforcement and uh, EMS. So we would basically get up very early in the morning and meet with the the larger group. And I'm talking about our meetings were about 4 a.m., we would have to get up at 4 a.m. go meet with um, the state police. They would give us our assignment for the day, and our assignment could be anything from just search and rescue to search and recovery. To at nighttime, it was patrol on the streets. There was a lot of looting going on, so you know we were working with the helicopters that were overhead. They were sending, you know, they were flaring the area looking for any thermal imaging of people moving around at nighttime, there was a curfew in place. So anybody that was moving around shouldn't have been out in the street. So they were sending in information to us where to respond. There was times when we teamed up to with the uh, Louisiana State Police, and we would pair off with them and um, answer calls for service, well, basically unanswered 911 calls. So when that hurricane hit, there was thousands and thousands of calls for 911 assistance. Every one of those calls eventually had to be uh, answered we had to go out and regardless of how old the call was we had to go out and respond to it you know and some of the people were calling they were trapped in their attic they were trapped on a rooftop you know obviously this is days and days later they're not going to be there but you had to answer the call anyway so kind of a mundane thing to have
1: to do but it, it had to be done you know. So when you were tasked to go down there, was there a primary goal or reason? There's just chaos going on. Were there certain initiatives that you were supposed to, whether it's feed people, whether it's rescue people, whether it's deal with violence? I mean, there's so many things when you're in a catastrophe yeah it was
0: kind of all of that it was really to help the people that were there Um, there was a lot of the area was evacuated so we pulled into areas that there was nobody around you you can I remember having to take a a shower using a shower bottle of water and I hung up from a tree in front of somebody's house and I stripped down and I took a shower (laughs) there was just nobody around you could do anything you want really but there were other areas that people did remain and they they stayed behind and you were trying to help them They, they were dealing with you know no electricity no fresh water no food it was one of those times in America that you really get to see the worst in people and you could see the best in people too, you know? Mm-hmm. And this was one of those times for me that, you know, we really got to see the best in people. And you know, some of these people had nothing. And they would show up at nighttime and they would be cooking these big vats of, you know, jambalaya. jambalaya. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and we were eating just uh, whatever we bought canned food with us. and we bought um, ready to eat meals, things of that nature. You know, that's what we were eating down there. They would come out with food that they really didn't have. They would serve all the first responders and thank us for being there. And, you know, so it was kind of a, a nice, a nice experience as well.
1: That's great. So the the reason I ask is you've always been a leader. Are you a born leader? Do you think that maybe you develop these leadership skills? Like where does this come from? I, know, don't be, think, yeah.
0: I don't think anybody's a born leader i yeah. think you're born i think you're born with certain traits that lend themselves toward leadership and it's for you over the course of your lifetime to develop those traits into a leadership role i don't think anyone's a born leader you're a born non-leader you know i just think that anybody can develop certain traits that they have and make themselves into a leader it's just a matter of desire its you know it's a matter of certain traits decision making comes into play you know you have to be a good decision maker to be a leader you have to care about people you know you really have to want the best for people that are working with you and working for you that's a lot a big part of leadership but I think I knew at a young age um, relatively young age that I I was kind of meant for a leadership role I mean I started out as a music major in college you know you think about that it's I've come where I am at now you know but I went to Manhattan School of Music I played the trumpet I played the piano And uh, I just kind of knew it wasn't really the life for me. I wanted to be part of something bigger than that. And I was really attracted to law enforcement and uh, what that offered in that sense. So I took a career there. And I think it was in the prosecutor's office. I was about 26 years old at the time when I got my first promotion to sergeant. That came as a, a surprise to me because that really meant that somebody believed in me that I could do that role. And whether you believe in yourself or not, somebody believed
1: in me what if you don't mind just to edify the listeners on what does it mean to be a sergeant is it just after a couple years you know you earn this title but or is it a true leadership role and if so like what does that entail
0: honestly of all the roles that i've held i've been a lieutenant captain chief all the roles detective the best role i've ever had was a sergeant and that is a frontline supervisor that's the person that's calling the shots on in the field and you know you have to be able to make you know instantaneous you know life decisions um, right away. And, uh, you know, the the thing about that is I tell people, younger people, I said, you know, there's three types of decision you can make as a leader. There's three types. The best decision you can make is the right one. Hmm. The second best decision you can make is the wrong one. The worst decision you can make is no decision at all. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. It really comes into play with police work, right, wrong, or indifferent, as they say, you got to make a decision and you have to be willing to do that. And that's part of being a leader. So a sergeant has the opportunity to do that out in the street, whether you're working days or a night shift, if you're working a street unit, you're constantly making decisions all the time. I like the position of sergeant too, because you're very close to your people. You get to know them, you get to know their families, their lives. They work very closely with you. When you get upper in the ranks like lieutenant, that's the next rank up. Lieutenant, you're a little bit more distant from that type of relationship with the people. You're making middle management decisions. You're dealing with sergeants so much. You're not hanging out after work with the guys that work with you. You kind of have to start separating yourself a little bit from that stuff. And same with you know, as you go up to captain, and you know, then you're even further away. So I loved being a sergeant because I was I had that I was out in the street, I was making the calls. I had that interpersonal relationship. So you know, not only you're you're working with guys, but you're you're watching out for them too. And I, I liked watching out for them.
1: Let me ask you this. So that's a great perspective by the way. I appreciate that. How have you been able to and, and I'll take a step back just from my perspective. So we've known each other for a few years we've had lunches, we've been out, but we also know a bunch of the same people. I've seen people that you know, either you've worked with, have worked with, and everybody has not only just a respect for you, you know, I'm sure obviously because you've earned it from the roles that you've had, but they genuinely like you. Mm -hmm. And it's not, No, I know other people that have roles similar to yours and people just pay homage just to the title. They're not doing that with you. Do you recognize that? Is that something that you're recognizing yeah. or is that? And if so, how have you done that? Because that's a rare, it's a real tough balance to be someone's boss, to be their leader, to have to make some of these decisions and to then to still have the respect because I've got to assume along the way, at least just some of the people that I've seen, you've had to be firm with them on maybe decisions that they didn't necessarily like, but somehow they've respected
0: that's the greatest thing that could be said about a leader is that listen you know I may not agree with you I don't maybe like what you did you know on that time but I respect you and I know that you treated me fairly that what you did whatever action you had to take against me you would have done that with anybody regardless who that person is that's important you know that's important for the people that you work with to know that and it's, it goes back to caring. I mean, you have to care about the people. That's your team. It's just like whether you're playing football or whether you're running a business. You know, police work is the same thing. You have a team. And if you want to succeed and you want to achieve whatever the mission is that you're trying to achieve, you better have good support from your team. They better respect you and they better – it helps if they like you too – but that likability factor comes in because you have genuine concern about you. You can't fake that. You know, you have to be concerned about people. Everyone's got lives, you know, everyone has a life and everyone's got issues in their life. Everyone's got problems. And you have to understand that and just give people a little bit of leeway and help them through those problems too. I have an open door. Policy, I mean, you know, that's something that is, uh, some people frown upon that type of thing. Some people think it's a positive thing. I have it to a certain extent. You can come into my office at any time and sit down, shut the door. If you've got a personal issue, let's talk about it. You know, let's talk, how can I help you? What can I do? Um, Because I care about them, you know. Um, if it's something that if you're complaining about the job or your boss, well, that's not the place to do it. You have to go, there's a com- chain of command structure <laughs> and, you know, things of that nature. So they know they can't do that, but they do know that I have their back and, you know, if they have uh, personal issues that, you know, I have I have an open door when it comes to that.
1: So, so, so what you're talking about is empathy. So you, you've got a high level of empathy and uh, I've heard people describe empathy as caring about the people that you care about what they care about. Yes, exactly. It. That's
0: what it comes down to. A police department It's a funny place because it, it it takes all kinds of people to make up a police. There's no perfect uh, model cop out there. It takes all kinds. It really takes the big, strong guy. It takes the little guy with the glasses. And, you know, everybody has something to bring to the table in police work. And, uh, you know, you have to recognize that. And you have to let everybody be who they are. And let them be the type of police officer they want to be. You know, as long as they're, you know, abiding by the rules. Yeah. And, you know, you, you let them you know do the type of policing that they, they want to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, what about now? So much harder to be an officer, you know, these days. And, it's and-
0: extremely hard. Uh, you know, this is the number one problem we're having in policing now is uh, we, you know, we're we losing people through attrition. We're not able to replace them. There's a lot going on in the world right now. There's a lot of national conversations here in America about policing Some of it is, you know, worthy. Uh, Some of the conversation is nonsense. It's tough because it has an effect on younger people, the people that we're trying to recruit to be the next generation of police officers. Nobody can really dispute the fact that we need police out there. We, We live in a society... And we need police to maintain order. That's never going to change. You know, people, they could think that they can change that and they could do without a police department and disband them and all these things you hear. That'll never happen. You know, you, you need police there. And for the most part, people want police there. You know, the people I encounter all the time, they want they want us out there. So, But it's tough because young people are being swayed by, whether it's political speech or whether it's by media, police are being portrayed in a light, particularly after the George Floyd uh, incident happened you know, people um, are portraying police and they're basically, there's this cookie cutter idea of what a cop is. It's just a, it's a terrible thing that's happening because, you know, young people that maybe would like to try a career in law enforcement, but they watch the TV, they see how police are being disrespected out there and say, why would I put myself through that? And it's, and you, know, you can't blame them for that. Police work to me is a calling, is a calling for me. It was a calling for my son. You know, I have a generations of police in my family. My great, great grandfather was a Hoboken police officer who was killed on the line of duty back in 1918. Yeah, it's a calling, I believe it. you, you got to really want to do it. I don't see that calling um, appealing to a lot of young people today.
1: Yeah, that's tough for, for a variety of reasons. And, and you're not compensated well anymore. Not that you were highly compensated, but the risk-reward I don't see as being there.
0: There's a lot of training requirements. There's a lot of new policies and directives that come out of the state and out of the federal government. And there's a lot of people that have really got their hands in policing how they should do their jobs, and it's um, it's unfortunate, it really is. And in some ways, it's good. I mean, you know, it's obviously anything that's going to improve uh, relations between police and the community that's that's always a positive step. But there's other things where people are coming in, they're getting their hands in it, and it's it's making it very difficult. And, and police, the the training requirements that police undergo now. I mean, New Jersey is now going to be going on, undergoing a licensing process for police officers. And that licensing process is going to require not only a lot of training, but also it's going to monitor a lot of their personal conduct and things that could, you know, something, perhaps you post something on social media that somebody doesn't like. You know, the cancel culture, people get a hold of it and and they, they all of a sudden, you know, you're out of a job because the state can remove your license, whereas it used to be up to a city or a town to decide whether or not that type of action was something that should be something that they should take action on or possibly, you know, but now it, it's going to be up to the state to look at it and, and decide whether they want to pull
1: a license or not. So it's more difficult to hire good people. Right. <laughs> the talent pool is less. It's becoming more stringent. Yes. How do you bring people in? And then who are the kinds of people, at least from your perspective, that should be, you know, serving? What do you see as, I know you said it's diverse, but, but are mm-hmm. there are there certain core, you know, DNA that right. makes up somebody? Like again, Wanting to serve like that, right. that's important, you know, high integrity, right? you know, what, what are other things that like, maybe someone's listening and they want to go into law or they have a relative that wants to go and you know, not cookie cutter, but just, outline you
0: know i mean anybody that has an interest in their community and serving them and it's it, literally it's a job of service you're serving other people it's diverse in the sense that i could be um speaking in the morning to somebody who's you know homeless i can then go and speak to somebody like yourself who's a professional i can then you know an hour later i could be dealing with a you know some drug addict or a criminal a hard criminal a police officer deals with things every single day you have to be part cop part priest part marriage counselor part you <laughs> (laughs) know and you have to have part social worker and that that that's a big part of it now is you're dealing with all these issues in policing you have to be able to switch gears and put that different hat on you have to want to help people that is the number one thing you have to want to help them and you have to be willing to sacrifice some of yourself for that you know um, it's a demanding job this is demanding hours i mean these guys out there they're getting in a car and they're you know it start at midnight when everybody's sleeping or are working a 12-hour shift from 6 8 6 p.m to 6 a.m that's a tough regimen on somebody's body and, and their psyche and so it's going to take its toll on you over yeah. time. And you, know, you have to be willing to understand
1: that and, and accept it so physically mentally all all of these things and, and you talked a lot about um a lot of I hate the term the quote unquote soft skills. Right. You know, I, I call them the durability skills. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, again, sounds like caring, empathy, being able to communicate. Yes. It sounds like with and and you know some of the things you also describe. Sounds like you have to be a chameleon. Yeah, yeah. To understand and getting back to that empathy, understand the homeless person, understand the drug dealer, understand the professional. You know, all, all of those things. Right. So, so what do you do to? Um, how do you develop those skill sets?
0: Communication, really. You learn how to communicate with people, um, and it, it comes through your, a lifetime of experience. And you have to be able to communicate with each one of those people and have empathy, as you said before, when you're dealing with each one of them. Um, you and sometimes you just have to be the police officer who's going to say no, you know. And, and people don't like they don't like being told no, you know. It, it, you know whether they're, they're being pulled over uh, for some violation. Um, you know people just don't typically like to be told what they can and can't do so you know you have to understand that too yeah so i, I give a lot of credit to police today the younger generation especially is you know they're taught a lot about de-escalating situations um, where that's type of stuff when my generation came but that was never taught to you you know de-escalation and you know it was like, you know, sometimes the situation go to zero to 60 in a second. And nowadays with, with these younger guys, they, they're being taught how to slow that process down and how to how to talk to people, communicate better with them, listen to them, you know. And listening is a big part of it. It's just listen. Mm. People sometimes, they just want to be heard and nobody is around to hear them. And, and if you show up on the scene and you're just directing or in the face and directing them what to do, what to do, they want to be heard. And so sometimes just hear them, you know.
1: Huh? Okay. Yeah, it's funny. I, I heard someone say once that uh, you know, listen. If you jumble around the words, it's 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 silent. You know, same words, silent. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> you know? True. Thought Very that. Was, true. Yeah, I thought that was. A, re- I thought that was really interesting. Um. So you've got a lot of accolades under your belt. Any in particular? Um, that you're most proud of you know was it the experience at Katrina was it winning you know the Irishman and also the best <laughs> Italian? You know? uh, uh, sorry that's an inside uh, joke yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I, well as far as accolades I mean one of the best things I ever did was um, I got nominated to go to the uh, FBI National Academy back in 2001 and the FBI National Academy is a um, it's a training it's an 11-week training session where you're nominated, it has to be approved by the director of the FBI. They only select certain people. It's I think it's if it stands the same today, it's it's less than two tenths of one percent of police officers get nominated and go through the FBI Academy, the National Academy. Congrats! So uh, thank you. Yeah, and it was um it, you know it's it's like a three part training. It's 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 physical, it's academic, and it's social. It's networking. It was a great great experience because you're working with the top elite. Police. well i had 280 men and women in my class and that was the 206th uh, session we had 280 men and women representing all 50 states and 23 different nations that were sent to train with us and uh, you go down to quantico virginia at the fbi academy and you're there for 11 weeks and you're it's physical you're you you're doing 10 mile runs you're doing Whoa. you know <laughs> yeah exactly you <laughs> know and uh, and i went there when i was geez, i was 40 when I went there, so it was uh, it was a little <laughs> tougher 40 year old doing 10 mile runs, believe me, for someone who never ran before, you know, but it, it was great because the, the, it really it, it opened your eyes to how other people police, not just you, because everybody around the country, they handle things differently and they have different problems and their issues are very different. And you got to see and hear from them and make those contacts with people. So that networking was really, really important for me because it opened my eyes to other people. It, it gave me a chance to look at other people and, and and look at like what type of leadership traits that they had that I want to mold into myself. And sometimes you meet people that you don't want to be like. You know, you meet leaders and say, man, it's, it's, it's just <laughs> as important to learn what you don't want to be. And those people teach you too, you know. And I've, I've ran into a lot of people. I've worked for people like that and said, I don't ever want to be that guy. You know? <laughs> but again, it's part of the learning process. So the FBI Academy really, that networking opened me up to, and, and, and the, the great part of it now is that I, could, I have a Rolodex of 40,000 graduates of the FBI National Academy. That I could open up to anytime. Rolodex, by the way, I should <laughs> explain what that is. <laughs> I still use that term too. By yeah, the way, okay. Okay. so I could open it up and, and call any graduate of the FBI, regardless of when they they could graduate, you know, tomorrow. I could call them up and and if I need something in that area of the world and that area of the country, uh, they're they're more than happy to. Have. So that networking was really powerful for me
1: yeah. <laughs> It's funny you say that. I've got a buddy who's in Homeland Security who is a uh, self-proclaimed Um, introvert and self-proclaimed hater of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said that that changed when he realized the magnitude of importance of having these kinds of relationships and having these kinds of networks. Same thing that you're talking about. He'd gone through some training. I I don't know if he went through the same one that that you did, but, you know, he said that um, as he's progressed in his career, he's been less and less in the day-to-day and it's been more in leveraging building developing those kinds of relationships to you know whatever it is whether he's looking for information whether he's looking to you know move the needle somewhere he talked about you know that it's it's all about trust you mm-hmm. know and and trust kind of being the holy grail of being able to connect with somebody and then to be able to leverage them um whatever maybe he has an ask or maybe they have an ask
0: right but right. but
1: you know that's what he's talked about so um i'm not surprised to hear you talk of, about that uh, what did you do to develop these relationships Are these people you can just call on or do you, do you stay in touch with any of these people do you, you text message do you like how do you you know how do you keep that network alive
0: i work on networking with people i really do dedicate a good portion of my time networking it could be personal I mean, I, I have personal relationships of networking that I want to, you know, I'll call friends that I've had that are no longer in the business and, and just call them up. And say, hey, how you doing? What's going on in your life right now? And, you know, you stay staying there, but then you have your business ones, your professional relationships, um, and you're constantly developing them. And um, what I do to try to nurture that, I think, is I try to become, even though time is limited, I try to become part of organizations and dedicate some of my own time. And what that does is exposes you to People from different walks of life. It puts you out there. Your face is out there as a. Um, I think that's important in networking. You know, people they need to see you. I'm on LinkedIn.
1: You've got five billion followers. Five billion followers now.
0: <laughs> yes, if you if you look me up on LinkedIn, it'll say under my name, uh, oh, for five billion connections, and you would be surprised how many people DM me and say, "Do you really have five billion connections?" It's like, oh my god. You know, but, um, but I like to, I, you know, listen, I'm a smart ass. I was, I was a born smart ass. I always been one. I always will be one. And I, and I like to have fun on, on social media like that. Certain, I, that's probably the only, um, social media that i really participate in some of the other ones are just brutal i mean like twitter i don't dare open my twitter man you get swarmed by all these people like, you don't give an opinion man it's like don't do it you know yeah. i love the back and forth dialogue that you get with strangers and i've really i've met some you know personal relationships on on, on linkedin and uh, met some people that you know i you know i like to cook so i exchange recipes with them or i like to they collect something i'll send them you know coins or t-shirts or whatever it is that they like to collect and we have those connections now and it's uh, i use um social media for, through linkedin i use it for a lot of fun you know i'm not i'm not always posting anything of a business um and some of the linkedin police get after me and say this is <laughs> just belong on linkedin you know and it's it's really silly and it's you know but i do you know i'll, I'll express my opinion i'm careful obviously but I, I express my opinion and and some people agree some don't um and that's okay. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. But I learn a lot, you know. I try to keep up with current events, and and uh, I love politics, you know. I love talking about politics, and uh, you know, in certain company, I do. And um, it's it's interesting how different we all are, you know. And from a political standpoint you know like you can you can be dealing with some of the smartest people in the world and, and and you go oh my god how can you believe that you know it's but that's just the way it is you know but you have to respect that because we all have a different we all have a different opinion right
1: yeah now. and and also getting back to just that connecting and that eq is understanding you know we probably have more in common than we don't
0: yeah exactly and and it, it it's just the way you approach people on something if, if you if you're down their throat and in their face about it you're not going to have a dialogue you're just gonna you're just gonna go back and forth but if you really try to understand where they're coming from and then address it in that approach you know approach it with that in mind, I mean, your communication is yeah. more
1: successful, I think. So I had an interesting uh, conversation with a, a guy who negotiates for a living. And, and one of the best things he taught me, and I'm going to botch this, so I'm not going to say his name, because he'd be upset with me for not getting it 100% right. But he says, you know, if you're ever going to get into a, a, a dialogue over you know, where you have a strong opinion, whether it's abortion, whether it's gun rights, whatever it might be, you know, uh, the the first question you should ask someone on the other side is, what do you need to know? You know, first of all, are are you open to ever changing your mind? And if so, what would you need to know? to make you change your mind and if they can't tell you that he just said it's just not don't even bother engaging in that conversation because because we could always change our mind you know like like we should be able to but if they blatantly just can't tell you that then that's one thing and then uh if they're telling you they're not able to and then if there's nothing that you can tell them that will change their mind then then you don't bother. There's the conversation, there's no positive yeah. ending.
0: I, and I think that's important. you got to weigh the value of the conversation of having it in the first place. I have a, a very dear friend of mine that is just, he would do anything for me and I'd do anything for him. And <clears throat> we're just at the exact opposite ends of the spectrum politically. You know, and I remember one, we were having a discussion about something and it got personal. It was just, it was more like, you know, criticizing the other person for the way they think. And I said, listen, it's not worth having this conversation. I thought it was important to um, mention to my friend that you know, this is where we're attacking each other here in this conversation. We're never going to agree. Uh, and and honestly, it's just, I don't I don't want to risk our friendship. You're too dear of a friend to me that, you know, to risk our friendship and, and the way we look at each other because of the stupid political issue that we're talking about. So, and I said, why don't we just agree to end it? And he says, you know something, you're absolutely right. He said, and we, we both came to that conclusion. Like, we're never going to talk politics because we're never going to agree. <laughs> And it's just not something that's worth discussing because, you know, he's valuable to me as a friend and I don't ever want to
1: risk doing anything, losing that. That's great. So you're able to agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah, it's, it comes down to that, really, yeah. you know, so. Awesome. Yeah. Chief, as, as we're winding down, you know, you were talking about the importance of networking. Uh,
0: how has it affected your career. I could talk about individual experiences of networking and that go way back to when I started um, networking and people having faith in you and and exposing you to other opportunities. I mean, my whole life was a matter of other people believing in me, believing that I could do more than I thought I was capable of doing. And, you know, so opportunities found themselves, they were provided to me and said, hey, listen, I want to recommend you for this position or for this promotion or whatever. That jobs like that don't go to guys like me. But they said, no, no, you could do this. And, you know, you're surrounded by good people. And, you know, we can, we can help you through this. And, and that's how, you know, Yeah, from whether it's a promotion or whether it was a job up in West New York where somebody said to me, you know, you can run this hundred and thirty man police department. I've never run a police department like that before. I'm how am I going to do that? And they believed in me. And when they believed in me, I I believed in myself. I said, Yeah, if they believe in me, I could do it, then I guess I can. So I took a risk. You have to be willing to take risks if you're going to be successful. If you want to achieve all the things you want to achieve and you have to take risks. You have to put yourself out there and just expose yourself and say, okay, here goes nothing, you know. But um, those networking opportunities that I had in, in my younger years, um, I think of a guy, Bobby Martin. Bobby's a good friend of mine. He was a former chief of mine, and uh, he was the guy was bigger than life. He was someone that when I was a young cop, I looked up to and said, man, I want to be like this guy. You know, and he provided a lot of networking opportunities for me as time went on and he exposed me to a different thing and that opportunity exposed me to other opportunities and and so you you look at one person and how, how much influence they can have in, in as far as networking is concerned. you know it could be a one opportunity thing and exposes you to a whole new world that you would have not been exposed to before and that leads to another thing and another thing and it's just that's really kind of been the key to my successes is, is is networking through
1: those um, opportunities. And you learned this early? Was this something that was like imposed upon you or this is something like, oh, wow, hey, this whole networking thing works. Yeah, and, and- well,
0: you know, back then they didn't have uh, networking. It wasn't even a word back then. It was it was kind of like you heard the old adage, like there's more deals made on the golf course than there were on the boardroom. And and there's a lot of truth to that. Um, There was, you know, back in the day, (laughs) back in the day, your bosses, uh, they didn't trust you unless you went to the bar at night with them. If you didn't drink at the bar with them, then they had, they're not going to trust you. So you got to put yourself out there and say, okay, this is so you hang out at the bar and talk to them and you open yourself up to their world, but you got to listen to them. And, you know, you got to pick up on different things and, you know, the good stuff and the bad stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was all of that, you know, as, as a young as a young man, just watching and listening, and and uh, taking extracting what I wanted from people, what I wanted to be, and then then the other stuff that I didn't like, I could just spit it back out, you know. So, wow,
1: yeah. Tim, I, I really appreciate you coming on. There's so many morsels, so many nuggets that you shared with us. Everything from leadership, caring, empathy, listening. Being silent, <laughs> you know, building those relationships, like all of those things are kind of like the, you know, part of the, your chemistry that's led you um, to, to your success. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Adam. I appreciate I appreciate your friendship. Yeah, thank you. And your service. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a network-wise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will NetworkWise.